Good morning, friends. Bring greetings from Reformation Christian Fellowship and Newport News. Your church brothers and sisters over there love you dearly. Pray for you regularly. And man, we are excited about the opportunity through the Pillar Network to have uh, a church plant that we do together. Church revitalization that we partner with together. And that's why we're in the Pillar Network. That's why we're swapping pulpits this morning and all of us preachers at our own churches are all over town and in different churches. It's so that one church's pastor can get to know and love the congregation of the other church pastors because we're not in competition, we're in cooperation. We're not trying to plant our own churches and and plant more churches than Fox Hill. We're going to be planting and revitalizing churches together in cooperation. My wife sent me with a mission. She said, your job is to make sure that after you preach to them, they like Reformation Christian Fellowship more than they did before. That's my job. My fear is that you'll like Reformation Christian Fellowship less than you did before. So I beg you, keep your expectations low and your grace big. Can we go to the Lord in prayer together? Oh God, our gracious Father. We're so grateful to be able to gather. There go my glasses. We're so grateful to be able to gather, sing your praises, hear your word, dive into it, to see the rich glories of Christ's work on our behalf. And I pray this morning, even as we've got a simple gospel text that each and every one of us here will leave thrilled with what Christ has done for us. Please, oh God, this passage begins by telling us how wicked and sinful we were before Christ saved us. Please help us see that and know that so that as the text progresses and shows us what Christ has done to save us, seeing who we once were, we'd be all the more grateful that Christ condescended to love sinners such as we. Fix our hearts and our affections on Christ today, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, dear saints, our text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. I invite you to turn there. Let me introduce our text in a couple of ways. Since we're launching into kind of the middle towards the end of chapter 1, I should probably inform you that previous to the text that we're in this morning, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, wrote to establish the preeminence of Christ in all things. He wrote to the church at Colossae so that in their hearts, Christ Jesus would be first and everything. So in the verses that precede the text that we're in, he presented Christ as the preeminent Lord of all creation by whom and for whom all things were created, to his name be glory. 
Then he presented Christ as the preeminent Lord of redemption, the one through who his righteous life and sacrificial death was saving a whole world of sinners and reconciling them to God. Well, in our text this morning, Paul preaches to the Colossian congregation that Christ's He preaches Christ's preeminently personal work of redemption for them. He gets personal after having said, Christ has saved a whole world full of sinners. His redemptive work is big. It's global. He brings the scope more narrow, and he says, and he saved you, dear ones. He loved and saved you. In telling us this, he's going to show us four things. And the first of them is this. Look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21 of chapter 1 of Colossians says, Sorry, I'm in chapter 2. Let me flip over. Verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So the first point that Paul makes before he gets into, he saved you, he loved you, it's personal. Before he talks about how much he's loved you and saved you, he says, look, you need to understand, first of all, how unsavable you were. You need to understand how sinful you were. You need to understand who you once were before Christ saved you. Beloved of God, Paul's words here are not uniquely true of the Colossian believers either. If you're thinking, wow, those guys must have been real losers. Glad we're not like that. If that's your thought, you've missed the point, haven't you? Paul's words were not uniquely true of the Colossian believers. After all, he says virtually the same thing to the Ephesian congregation when in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The first three chapters of Romans makes it clear that not one, not even one is righteous apart from the gracious work of Christ on their behalf. Therefore, we should read these words here in Colossians 1.21 and say to ourselves, this isn't just who they were. This is who I was. This is who I was before Christ saved me. And made me his own. If you're here today and you have not yet repented of your sin. You have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not yet believed the gospel truth. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Through his righteous sinless life. His substitutionary death and resurrection. If you haven't yet believed that message. No, this isn't who you once were. It's who you are. And it's why you need Christ's preeminently 
personal work of redemption today. And if you're here today and you have repented of your sin, as I, I trust that most, if not all, maybe most all of us have, then this is who you once were. Okay, that said, Paul breaks things down for us. He gives us three sort of subpoints under this first category of who we once were. And the first of them is this, who we once were positionally. Positionally, we were alienated from God. And so we ask the question, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to be alienated from God? It means simply this, that you were his enemy. And that he violently and forcefully opposed you. They cast you out of his presence and out of his sight. I don't know if you guys are into children's books, Christian children's books, but if you have a collection of them, uh, there's one that's excellent. It's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And in that, we see that this is a reality from Genesis 3 onward. As soon as sin came into the world, God cast Adam and Eve away from his presence. You can't come near me. You can't dwell with me. You can't enter into paradise and and feed from the tree of life. And to protect that presence, he put a cherubim with a sword flaming and swinging in every direction to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And that cherubim marked the way saying, because of your sin, you can't come in. You can't come to me. You're one of God's enemies. And he's got a flaming sword that keeps you away from him because of your sin and mine. David recognized this as well. He recognized this was true, so he said in Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty. Oh, dear ones, doesn't it make you tremble to think that apart from the saving grace that is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ, that is God's disposition to us? This is what it means to be alienated from God. And that's who we once were. This was our position apart from Christ. Second, Paul points that we were emotionally or mentally, not only were we hated and separated, hated by God, separated from God, but we were mentally hateful of God. Notice that our our text actually says hostile in mind. Personally, I struggle to understand this. I look back on my own life before I was saved and and I think to myself, I don't ever remember thinking, I really don't like you, God. Maybe you're like that too, right? 
before you got saved, you're thinking, well, I don't remember as a non-saved person walking around, shaking my fist at God, telling him how much I despised him and hated him and, you know, any of those things. Isn't that your experience as well? And so we might ask, well, why does Paul say that this is who we were before we came to know Christ? It doesn't seem to jive with my experience. A couple of reasons. One, in Romans chapter one, verse 30, he adds that we were haters of God. But that's just saying the same thing. It's not explaining. How were we haters of God, hostile in mind toward God before Christ? And the answer, I think, is maybe best seen by way of analogy. I have a beautiful wife. She would love to be here today, wanted to be here today, but the person who was doing nursery at our church got a terrible migraine, and so now she's stuck doing nursery. That's the lot of a pastor's wife sometimes. So she's at our church back home doing nursery, but she's a lovely lady, and she's my beloved bride. By the covenant that we have towards one another, she is biblically entitled to certain things from me to my selfless, sacrificial love, to my undying devotion, to my care and and providing for her, to my courtesy that I would live with her in an understanding way, says 1 Peter. So these are certain things. Now, I want you to imagine that I come home from a long day at the office. I've got counseling situations. I've got preaching things that I've got to work on. I'm writing a sermon. I'm writing a Bible study. I'm exhausted. I come home. It's 1030 at night. She's waiting up for me. She's got a plate of food wrapped in saran wrap. And I just take the plate of food out of her hand saying nothing to her. And I walk by. I don't greet her. I don't kiss her. I don't hug her. I don't ask her about her day. Nothing. Just take the plate of food. Stick it in the microwave. Sit on the couch eat the food, go to bed, say nothing to her at all. Now I want you to tell me, is my wife going, at this moment, he's such a wonderful man, isn't he? (laughs) Or is she asking herself, why is he being so cold to me? Doesn't he know who I am to him? Shouldn't me being who I am to him mean that he responds to me with what I do as his wife, affection, kindness, tenderness, care. My lack of giving her what she's due is experienced tantamount to aggressive. She's wondering, is he angry with me? Mad at me? Why isn't he talking to me? And dear ones, so it is. In our relationship with the Lord. Because he is our God who deserves all glory and honor and praise and thanks. Without ceasing every moment of our lives. We should do everything for his glory. And if we give him anything less than that. It's tantamount to hatred. Tantamount to hostility. It's rebellion against what he's deserving of. More so even than my maltreatment of my bride in the analogy given. So our minds were hostile to God. You might not have said, I 
hate you, God, but everything about the way you thought was aggressive and violently opposed to God unless what you did was give him all the glory that he was due before you even loved him, served him. Of course you didn't, right? So we were positionally alienated, mentally hateful of God, and actually a sinner before God. We were one who did evil deeds. And Paul deprives us of the ability that we can imagine ourselves as sort of, ah, if we weren't, if we weren't evil, at least we were maybe neutral. Did anybody else think of themselves that way? There are people in this world who are really bad, and then I was sort of neutral before I got saved. Certainly not wicked. Paul deprives us of any opportunity of thinking this about ourselves here in our text. Doing evil deeds, he says. And of course, other passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, And such were some of you. And you know what's wild about this list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? It's just a smattering of examples. It is not an exhaustive list of all the things that we do wrong. So if he were to go on and say everything evil that could be done, he wouldn't have said, and such were some of you. He could have just as easily said, and such were all of us. That's who we were. Beloved of God, we were condemned in our sin. We were alienated from God, hated by Him. We were hateful of Him in our thoughts, even if we didn't know it. And we were wicked in our deeds. And we deserved not the kingdom of God. That's who we were. And if you're wondering why we're spending so much time talking about who we used to be, it's not like that's who we are anymore. Further, it makes me uncomfortable. I wish we weren't talking about who we were so much. Well, the reason we're leaning into this so hard is because of this. If we allow ourselves to forget how truly and desperately sinful we once were, we will fail to see how amazing God's grace toward us is in Christ. Do you understand that? If you think, well, you know, I wasn't that bad. I kind of deserved saving. Then Christ's saving grace for you isn't that impressive. It's expected. You think, well, he ought to have saved me because I was pretty decent. But that's not the way the Bible describes us. So the Bible describes our sin in vivid detail so that we might say, having been saved by Christ, it's marvelous. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Only people, know, only people who know how great their sin was can say how marvelous Christ's saving grace is. Now, as we move from verse 21 to 22, Paul begins to speak of the Savior's marvelous, wonderful love for you. And he shows us, having seen who we once were, he shows us next what Christ did for you. Verse 22a, read that with me, will you? 
he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to, and I'm going to pause right there. He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Simply, dear ones, what did Christ do for the Colossians? What has he done for you and me? The answer, he's reconciled us to God. We who are in Christ are no longer God's hated enemies. We are his beloved children. And how has Christ done this? Well, verse 22 says that he has done it by his, in his body of flesh. And I want to unpack a couple of significant things about that very phrase. The simple meaning is, of course, that Christ, the eternal Son of God, reconciles us to the Father by coming to earth, taking upon himself a true human nature, and then being for us the propitiation of our sins, 1 John 4.10. That's simple. He bore the wrath of God in his own human flesh that was due to us so that we would not have to bear God's wrath ourselves. The man Jesus was alienated from the Father on the cross, hated by the Father on the cross, so that you would be reconciled to the Father, beloved children of the Father. And that's the main point here. But I also want us to see that Paul is intentionally and subtly defeating a heresy that was creeping into the Colossian congregation. An early form of Gnosticism that we now refer to as docetic Gnosticism. If you want to impress your friends at lunch, you can use that expression. You'll be like, yes, in Colossians 1, 22, Paul was defeating docetic Gnosticism. And everyone will be very impressed. But he was. He was defeating a subtle form of docetic Gnosticism. It had crept into the church of Colossae. And its proponents argued that Christ did not have a real human body. They believed that he merely appeared human, like a specter. Not really a man, but he looked like one. And this was a, a common teaching of the day. And it, it was such an erroneous view of Christ that those who believed in such a Christ didn't believe in the true Christ and could not be saved. So Paul wanted to refute this heresy. And he did so so subtly by just simply saying, he bore our sins in his body of flesh. Jesus had a real, true human body. And he bore the sins in a true human body. And he had to. Because God is just the penalty for human sin must be borne by a true human. If it isn't, God is unjust. And he is punishing something not human for human sin. Some say, well, why couldn't he have sent an angel to save me? That's why. Christ had to be a man and God. Now, beloved, we can learn from Paul's example here. Watching Paul defeat false teachers should show us how to do the same. Paul defeats them by teaching truth, and we should do likewise. Dear ones, if, if you hope to rescue someone from the destructive influence of a false teacher, let me maybe make it more poignant and more applicable. If a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door, 
right? And they say, oh, you know, in John chapter 1, you know, there's no definite article. So, you know, uh, uh, I'm not so sure that we can say that Jesus is God. He may be a God, but he's not God. And you're like, ooh, that is not the Jesus of the New Testament. And you want to know, well, how do I help this person come to know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly? Not some erroneous version of Jesus Christ that isn't Jesus Christ and can't save. Paul's a great model for us here in Colossians 1. We teach truth. You have to do more than simply show the falseness of the false teacher. And sometimes we want to do that. I don't know about you guys. At Reformation Christian Fellowship, we love doctrine, like a lot, maybe too much. We love doctrine so much that when people uh, are wrong about their doctrine, we love to get on the internet and just rip them a new one for it. That guy's, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But it's, It's not enough to simply defeat a bad argument. You haven't made any progress towards the salvation of a lost soul if you simply say what you believe is terrible. Right? The Jesus that you believe in isn't the Jesus of the Bible and can't save you. That's the end of the conversation. Bye. You have to be able to go farther and say, here's the true Jesus. And if you don't know him... There isn't any salvation, for there is salvation in no other name given among, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Right? All right. So that's what Christ did for you. He reconciled you to God in his body of flesh, bearing the penalty for your sin on the cross. In the next part of verse 22, Paul addresses the subject of Why? And you put these two things together, that's the natural question, isn't it? This is who I once was really, really bad. This is what Christ did. That was amazing what he did. He took me who was hated by God and made me beloved of God. He took me who hated God in my mind and gave me a heart to love God. Why would he do this? What precious motivation drove him? And that's the second half of verse 22. Read it with me, won't you please? He did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Generally speaking, Everything that we once were in verse 21 is undone. Everything that you once were, gone. We who were reconciled to Christ are no longer alienated from God, no longer hateful of God, and no longer wicked in God's sight. Here in the second part of verse 22, though, in these verse we just read, we see the reason why. And the first of a couple of reasons that he gives in this verse is this. He did it in order to present you as holy and blameless. In order to present you as holy and blameless. To be presented as holy and blameless means that we are presented as ones who are set apart. Holy, devoted to God. It means that in God's eyes, we are righteous, sinless, his. 
to be presented as blameless means that we are perfectly acceptable to God. Paul says in Ephesians, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's what it means. Second, not only did he do this in order to present us in that way, but he did it to present us as not just holy and blameless, but also above reproach. And this is not just a synonym for holy and blameless. He's not just saying the same thing again, but in a different way. You see, while being presented holy and blameless shows us that we are presented as acceptable and pleasing to God because of what Christ has done for us, this expression above reproach indicates that no one will be able to bring any charge against God's elect, just as Romans 8.33 says. This says, not only are you perfect and pure and, and lovely unto God, but nobody could even try to say otherwise. Christ's reconciling work for you, dear ones, is so very perfect, so very full, so thorough, so magnificent that literally nothing in all creation can bring a reproach against you if you're his. Paul asks the question in Romans 8, being Christ's, what shall separate us then from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And then he lists all sorts of things and he says, none of that stuff, nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing could bring a reproach. Not even the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. Are you all familiar with the book of Zechariah chapter 3? There was a, a priest who lived in Zechariah's day who felt not so above reproach. And one of the night visions in Zechariah chapter 3 describes this. The high priest Joshua stands before the Lord and he's wearing robes that are stained and dirty. And he says, I just don't feel like I'm very clean and able to stand before the Lord dressed the way that I am. And the enemy, Satan, comes before the Lord and says, that's right, look at him, he's dirty, he's vile, he doesn't belong here, he's a sinner and he should be kicked out. But do you know what the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord, said to Satan in response? He said, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then the Lord dressed the high priest Joshua in his very own righteous robes. And the enemy's mouth was shut. Standing there in Christ's own righteousness, the enemy Satan could say nothing. That's a picture of what he's done for each and every one of us. Above, beyond reproach. Third, not only has he done it to present us as pure and blameless, above reproach, but to present you to himself. Our text says that Christ reconciled us in order to, to present you, the end, 
before him. The language here is very similar to Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27, which says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, listen now, listen, dear ones, so that he might present the church to himself. I cannot help but think of the prophet Zephaniah. Who in chapter 3 says that the Lord rejoices over us with loud singing. And he quiets us by his love. Christ's redeeming work for us was that so he would present us to him. As pure and holy as his spotless beloved bride. Christ's goal in redemption, hear me, this is important. Christ's goal in redemption is not that you would have something from him. Christ's goal in redeeming you isn't to give you something from him. It's that he would have you. And you would have him. A great type of our Lord Jesus Christ is seen in that book, Song of Solomon. Where the Shulamite bride sings in chapter 2 verse 16. I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. Christ cleansed you, washed you, and perfected you. So that that might be true. That you, we, the church of Jesus Christ. Would be the beloved's. And he would be ours. To the praise of his glorious grace. Now beloved. That moves me. Does it move you? This all is magnificent. And beautiful. And stunning. And sometimes I get too technical. When I think about the doctrine of justification. Or I get too um, swift. In moving through. The, the facts of the gospel. And I inadvertently end up thinking of God. As cold and a detached judge. Who is either going to say to me. Coldly and mechanically. I'm either guilty or I'm innocent. One way or another. There's no feeling. It's just facts Jack. Well, that's not the kind of saving grace depicted here in our text, is it? Well, he is certainly judge, and he is certainly an objective judge. Absolutely, yes and amen. He is not a cold and detached judge. He dearly loves and receives his own, those whom he justifies. Now, having told us that we were once Sinners, having told us what Christ did to reconcile us in his own body, and having told us why he reconciled us, that we would be righteous, beyond reproach, and his. Paul closes by showing us the proof that he has reconciled you. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a while. And you have absolutely no doubt in your mind that the Lord Jesus has saved you. Maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord for very long. And maybe the constant plague of ongoing sin makes you wonder again and again. Has he saved me truly? 
Am I cleansed? How can I know? How can I have some sense of assurance? How can I wake up in the morning and with all the certainty in the world say, I am my beloved. I am my beloved's and he is mine and nothing in all creation can separate me from him. How can you say that with such certainty? If you want to know the answer to that question, verse 23, read with me. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's how. Now let's be clear about what Paul is saying here. When Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, he is not arguing that Christ might reconcile you if you continue. To read it that way would to be erroneous. We know that he isn't saying that because he speaks of Christ's reconciling work earlier as something that he has done already. We can't interpret this. If you do this, then he will. Previous verses says he already has. Thus, the if is not referring to something that we must do in order to obtain reconciliation from Christ. Rather, it refers to the proof that we are the ones who have been already reconciled by Christ. It's very similar to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We have, past tense, come to share in Christ. We already have. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So beloved of God, Paul is showing us how we can experience a sense of assurance. He's teaching us how we can have deep confidence in our souls and know for certain that we truly have been reconciled to God by our loving Savior. He is telling us you can know for certain that you have Jesus And he has you. If you wake up in the morning each day and you still want him. And you still believe in him. That is proof of his saving and preserving grace. Don't you know? Don't you know that if it weren't for his saving and preserving grace. If it were up to me to hold on to Jesus tightly enough that that I don't lose him, that if that were up to me, my salvation would certainly be lost. But because by his preserving grace, he holds on to me. And I wake up each day still believing. That's how I can know. That I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. You can know that Christ is holding you fast if, by his grace, by his grace, you're still believing. Please know that's the only reason you are still believing. 
for some other for some other means of salvation there is none so I close beloved with this my prayer for each and every one of us today is not well now that you've heard this thing I want you to have five practical points of application let's volunteer for the soup kitchen let's fix the roads and the highways and all you know no not five points of social transformation I don't have any such thing the application today is simple I want our souls to find rest and assurance in Christ's work for us. I want us to look at who we once were and say, how is it that you could have ever chosen to save someone like me? I want you to find grace amazing that he saved a wretch like me. I want you to look at Christ's work and say that if Christ had not borne my sins in his body of flesh, there was no other way of atonement. There was no other way of being reconciled to God. How marvelous that he would die that I might live. How marvelous that he would be hated by God that I might be beloved of God. How astounding that he would choose to love someone who was hateful of And I want you to know the assurance of salvation. That if you woke up this morning and you're still pursuing Christ, if indeed you're continuing in the faith today, that is wonderful and beautiful evidence that you are His and He is yours. And I hope you leave bursting with joy over that. I hope you leave with a smile on your face and a song on your lips over that reality that Christ himself might thrill your soul. Can we pray?